This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience. Can you imagine that moment up in some high place, maybe with your back to a cliff face or a bridge pylon hundreds or thousands of feet in the air? You're zipped into a nylon outfit while the valley or the expanse lays out before you. The wind crisp and snapping around you and the vibrancy of the entire environment just coming alive, like you're fully alive. I've recently been exposed to this concept of wingsuit flying by my next guest, who also happens to be the chief technology officer of a major corporation. Larry Hack joins me this week to describe the similarities between extreme sports and extreme IT, the preparation needed for one, very similar to the preparation needed for the other, and the lack of preparation and complacency is a disaster in both cases. It may not seem that there's a lot of correlation there, but as you'll hear from Larry, there actually is. We could have spoken on this subject for hours. It's a pretty intense conversation. He also details the catastrophic events of things going wrong, whether through preparation, circumstances beyond our control, or just bad luck. And sometimes, as Larry shares, these are very personal and very painful experiences. The value for you and I, as we listen to this conversation today, is that as we push ourselves, whether through technology or sport, Yes, embrace the opportunity, but we need to be diligent and thorough in our preparation and our execution. I find Larry fascinating, entertaining, and a little insane. In other words, my kind of people. Please enjoy the conversation with my friend, Larry Hack. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data. How we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. We ready? We're have ready. You, have you done a bunch of podcasts before? I've done a few, but I used to do a lot of television shows oh. as I was growing up. We sold paint remover products, and I used to travel around the country when I was a kid selling paint remover. I'd go on television shows and demonstrate it and then meet them at a flea market or something and tell them to bring their furniture out, and I'd teach them how to refinish furniture on their, on their furniture. So you're a star in the studio. Well, that's how we're going to start the podcast right there. That's way better than accounting. Larry, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Why? Why did you get out of the uh, uh, that business? You're you're a star uh, in training, and uh, uh, instead you went into IT. You know, we had this family business, and my dad just assumed that I would follow in his footsteps and run the business someday. Yeah. And uh, we needed to automate because we were starting to sell a lot more product. Yeah. And we were shipping UPS, and we were filling out all these manifest sheets by hand. Right. And we had a Commodore 64, so that kind of <laughs> dates me. That was a ways back. And my dad, who's not computer illiterate at right. all, right. Uh, he built some software to manage a handful of orders on the Commodore 64. Right. Well, I became really passionate about that Commodore 64 and wrote my first program when I was a kid. Right. And I started getting more and more interested in it. And I ended up, uh, was going to buy some software. And I went out and I was looking to buy something or to get a developer to develop it. I just wasn't finding anything I liked and it was expensive. And We were a small business. We needed to save money. Right. So I went to the university and uh, where my mom and dad had gone and where I was going to be going when I got older. And uh, I went to the... Uh, one of the computer professors and said, who's your best developer? And mm -hmm. they introduced me to someone and I talked to the guy and I said, I'd like to hire you. I've done just a small amount of programming. Mm -hmm. I want to write this program and I don't want you to write it. I mm -hmm. want you to look over my shoulder and tell me exactly what to do right. so that I know it, understand it, and I can maintain it in the long run. Right. 
Well, as we got involved in this project, I became so passionate. I said, this is what I want to do. Right. And I joined a user group community for Clipper, which right. also dates me. Yeah. And uh, I was learning how to, to program. And, and one of the people that were running the, the uh, user group took an interest in me, thought I was, was kind of smart and said, hey, I got this position for a developer. Why don't you apply for it? I said, I'd love to. Yeah. And uh, I interviewed, we settled on a salary, and like, I just couldn't believe they were going to pay me this much money to, to write code. Right. We grew up, uh, you know, I grew up making paint remover products in an old, dirty barn, chemicals, and, you know, slave, you know, child labor laws would have intervened <laughs> nowadays, you know, with what right. my dad put my sister and I through uh, making product and stuff. And to go to an air-conditioned office and sit there on a computer and get to write code and hang out with other coders and learn from them, like I was just in heaven doing that. So that's yeah. kind of how I got my start in programming. That's, you know what though, that's such an authentic American story. I, I you know, God help your lungs, but still it's, uh, it's such a great foundation for work ethic and um, followed by opportunity. Mm -hmm. You know, I love it. Uh, and where was that at? I was in Michigan. Michigan. What uh, are you in Northern Michigan, Southern Michigan? Uh, right down by uh, South Bend, Indiana. So oh, just yeah. across the border. Yeah, yeah. We were talking offline uh, about motocross up there, uh, Red Bud, and I remember the first time I went up there, I had to stay in South Bend, mm -hmm. and um, it was such a uh, man. They they love their football team there. I just started cracking up. It's uh, I almost said it's a religion, but I guess it sort of is because it's at Notre Dame. But anyway, it's an interesting part of the world. Um, yeah, I used to go by the stadium on Saturdays when they're having the games and just hear the roar of the crowd. It's yeah. just a cool place to be. Yeah, it's a really cool town. It's it's great people. So you went from that encoding into, um, uh, into IT. Before we dive into the IT part, you have a series of curious hobbies that we've been talking about, which crack me up and terrify me at the same time, which isn't easy to do. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm an extreme sport person. I like to scuba dive. I grew up riding and racing dirt bikes. Uh, when I left home at 18, uh, I joined the military and was um, airborne and uh, mechanized infantry, combat infantry. And I start listening to your story and I just start cracking up. I'm like, nope, I'm not going to do that. So what are some of the things that uh, we were talking about? Well, you know, I got started when I was really young. It was the Evil Knievel days. Oh, sure. And so he was my my hero. Right. And so I got into motocross pretty early. Had a dirt bike, one of those, you know, Honda 70s, uh -huh. old school Yeah, we bikes. had a Honda Trail 72. Yeah. And, you know, I upgraded over time to uh -huh. a YZ250 and raced out at Redbud Track and Trail and yeah. so forth. Uh, so I was always kind of into those, you know, extreme sports. I uh -huh. liked the, that idea. And my dad grew up. Uh, really having a passion for scuba diving. Before there were really agencies and certifications and so forth. Right. When he was pretty young, he got scuba gear, and he took me to Florida in the Florida Keys when I was six years old, introduced me to snorkeling, right. and I just thought that was the coolest thing. And then he always used to tell me the story about Icarus mm. and uh, the father-son, and they wind up you know, stuck in this castle on this place and they're trying to escape. So the father puts together some wings with feathers that are flying around in there and some wax and warns the sun not to fly too close to the sun or too right. close to the water. And, you know, end result, he ends up dying because he right. doesn't follow the advice. Right. And, um, you know, that story really stuck in my head. Mm. And uh, he also took me camping every Labor Day. 
And when I was really young, we went to Lake Michigan one time and spent the night, and he brought a, a raft along. Mm. And we got into the water, and we swam underneath, up under, you know, into the raft. It was like a little cave. Mm. And that, like, really uh, sparked my interest. <laughs> like, that was just so cool. Right. So when I started diving with him, when I was pretty, about 18, I got, we did our certification together for scuba because he had never been certified. Right. And we would travel to the Caribbean occasionally, and we wanted to then go dive together, and he knew he would have to actually get his certification. So that was fun to get to do that with him. Mm -hmm. And um, then when I saw these springs in Florida, I was just thinking crystal clear water because, right. uh, you know, it's in Michigan, we'd have like five-foot visibility. And, right. Uh, so I went to Florida to see some of the springs, and there's like, wow, there's a cave here. Mm. And so I wanted to venture into the cave, and so I kind of got introduced to it. And then I was like, well, I'm going to take a class. I don't really want to be a cave diver. That, I don't really – that sounds scary. Like right. I don't really want to go back way back in a cave. But I could be a better diver if I follow the technique that these guys use. Mm -hmm. They looked so much different than the open water divers I was familiar with. Their gear was really streamlined and organized. They looked like military or something, they looked very um, stealth and mm -hmm. so forth. So I took the class, but then I was like, well, I want to, I want to see what's around the corner, you know? It's like, mm -hmm. that looks really cool. And to venture a little farther, I had to do some more training. And then I had to go into places that were a little tighter if I wanted to see what was the under, on the other side. So I switched to a different dive configuration where instead of having two tanks on my back, I have tanks on each side of my body. Mm -hmm. And then I can go into smaller places. And I was a mm -hmm. claustrophobic cave diver. It's right. like, I don't, you know, I don't <laughs> like these tight spaces. Right. But... Slowly, over time, as you do these things, you get more and more comfortable to the environment. Right. And, you know, now I'm taking off tanks and I'm pushing them out in front of me and squeezing through places that I would have never considered going right. before. And uh, then I saw these guys on YouTube uh, flying in the mountains in Switzerland with these wingsuits. And instantly, I was like, I'm going to do that. Like, I had, I was never more convinced about anything in my life when I saw that. I'm going to do that. What was it about it that most people see that and say, well, here's an accident waiting to happen, or yeah. this is not real, or whatever. First of all, they can't get to Switzerland, much less get in a wingsuit and go flying in Switzerland. So why, why did you see that and say, oh, heck to the yeah? You know, I, I didn't know what it was initially, and I figured out shortly afterwards, you know, my dad told me the story of Icarus so many times. I think that's what really mm. attracted me and the, the, the attention to it. So, I, you know, I mapped out a plan. So I'm a planner, mm -hmm. uh, project management certified and so forth, you know. So it's like, okay, well, what do I got to do to fly a wingsuit off the cliff? So I start doing my research, and I start making a list of the things I got to do. Well. Right. You know, I got to go get my skydiving license. Well, it's an A license. Well, what do I got to do to get that? And then, well, when can I put the wingsuit on? Well, you got to have 200 jumps first. You really should have one to 200 jumps before you base jump. Well, what do I got to do to learn to base jump? Well, you go to Twin Falls, Idaho, where you're allowed to jump off the bridge, find a good mentor, and uh, learn how to pack your parachute and so forth. And then... Uh, Learn to, tr to track, meaning that you jump out of the plane and instead of just falling straight down, you angle your body so that you're moving forward. Mm. And when you get comfortable with that, then you put on a tracking suit, which kind of fills up like the Pillsbury Doughboy mm -hmm. and gives you more surface resistance, but it still gives you complete flexibility with your hands so you can reach your toggles, mm -hmm. maneuver your canopy and so forth. The wingsuit's very restricting. Mm. 
And you can go a lot farther in the tracking suit, so you kind of get the feel of how to navigate your path and so forth, which applies to wingsuiting. Then you put the wingsuit on, and you get comfortable in the wingsuit. Then you go someplace where you can jump out of a balloon so you can feel that dead air because it's much different jumping out of a plane that's going 70, 90 miles an hour right. versus a stationary and being able to get your body in the right position so that you're flying properly. Yeah. And then you go to someplace with a big mountain, preferably with an overhang where you can jump and even if you make a mistake, you can correct it. And you usually do that in a tracking suit first mm -hmm. and then you move on to – uh, a wingsuit. So I made a four-year plan. Mm. I'm going to do this and then this and then this. And actually after two and a half years, I went to Norway and I was jumping off the fjords, the big cliffs there mm -hmm. in, a, in a tracking suit. And then the next year, uh, I went to Italy and I did the first jump in a tracking suit and then my first jump in a wingsuit. And, you know, I had dreamed about what, what this would feel like. And you see a hawk stand on the top of a mountain and you see them kind of jump off and go almost vertical and then they start to pull out of it and they generate speed and then they're flying. It's exactly what it feels like when you jump off the mountain. Mm. It's quiet. It's peaceful. Then you start to hear the speed of the wind pick up and you're almost head down. And then as you gain speed, you start to feel the suit pressurize and it gets stiff and now you start moving forward and then the speed picks up. And then you're hauling ass right. and you're doing it. You're flying and right. it, it is the real deal. And then when you start getting more experienced and can start turning back towards the mountain, because mm. initially wingsuits were created because people were dying, jumping off the mountain, opening up their parachute, being so close, they might have a 180, they fly back into the mountain right. and then they die. So right. like, well, if we could develop something you know, that would get us far away from the mountain, then it right. would be much safer. Right. But then as soon as they did that, guys were like, well, I want to fly alongside the mountain. Right. And so they put themselves right back into harm's way right. by flying right along the mountain. Uh, my first experience flying close to the mountain was in Switzerland, uh, uh, an exit called Dumpster, because you get off the train and you walk past this dump and then you, there's the exit point. Right. But the exit point kind of, the way it's situated kind of has you jumping past a tree kind of in line with the, with the, with the wall. Mm -hmm. And my mentor was like, okay, jump. And then immediately, like as soon as you feel stable, turn out into open space and kind of move out and then open. Mm. And I jump and I'm flying along the wall. And I'm like, I'm doing it. Like I'm, I'm flying along the wall. And I didn't follow my mentor's in instructions and kind of turn to the right. And, and Switzerland's uh, – Lauterbrunnen is where we were. At the mount, They're not as high. So it's mm -hmm. like 1,700 feet. Mm -hmm. It feels pretty low. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just mesmerized looking at the wall, flying along it. And I'm like, oh, I'm getting low. I mm -hmm. need to turn. So I start to turn and I'm like, well, I'm getting really low. And so I pitch and while I'm turning – and so I have this heart opening. I get line twists. The wind's kind of blowing back towards the mountain. I'm drifting towards the mountain. I'm trying to get out of the line twist. I'm trying to reach up above the line twist to control my canopy. And just as I get out of the line twist, I kind of – go by the side of the mountain, about 10 feet away from it. And I'm just envisioning that if I hadn't been able to turn, my canopy would have hit the wall. It would have kind of bounced along the wall. Right. I would have been going down and maybe I would have gotten it turned around in time. Right. Maybe it would have just kind of bounced all the way down and I would have had a really rough landing. Right. I showed the video to my son because we <clears throat> this was a family trip. We were all together and right. my son cried. Right. How he, old was he? 
he was 22 mm. or so. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a skydiver too, mm -hmm. and he's very talented. He's mm -hmm. a very good flyer. Mm -hmm. A lot less flights than I have, mm -hmm. but he learned a lot quicker. Mm -hmm. My daughter uh, has her license as well. Mm -hmm. We had a Father's Day jump where mm -hmm. all of us jumped together, which mm -hmm. was really cool. Mm -hmm. But I, I realized, you know, this was really serious. I, I knew it was a dangerous sport. Mm -hmm. um, and I got a little bit complacent. I got a little, I, I didn't follow the plan. Mm -hmm. uh, I was mesmerized by it. And I really kind of got wrapped up in the moment mm -hmm. and put myself uh, in harm's way. And, you know, I've got a family, a wife, kids, mm -hmm. and really didn't want to have that experience again. And yeah. so really taking the precautions to make sure, first and foremost, that you stay safe. It's something, the more extreme my experience is, the more extreme this sport is, the less um, the less opportunity you have to recover from a mistake like that. And it could be cutting cows from a herd. It could be, you know, almost not, not that that's a sport, but it's an extreme job. It could be any of these other things that um, our instructors drill in us, a uh, method of procedure, standard safety checks like I just remember even special ops going into the military we do these things once we make contact whatever our plan was as Mike Tyson says you know everybody's got a plan to get punched in the face you know mm -hmm. like you have to drill and train so that you don't get hypnotized or mesmerized by whether it's fear or just fascination um, of the events around you and you you get disrupted or disoriented for any of a number of from a flashbang to a beautiful wall passing by you and it's a dream come true, but it, it hypnotizes us. Divers frequently, if they're not paying attention, they get so enraptured by what they're looking at underneath them. They're not looking to the left or the right or how they're drifting or where they're going and or boat or like in all these other circumstances. So when you saw that um, and, and you processed it, it, it obviously didn't slow you down, but how did it reset your mechanism for, um, uh, you know, your recommitment to um, following the plan. Yeah, really making that plan and then following the plan, right, is, is key. In diving, we have stop, think, and then act because many times if you react first before you think, you make the situation worse. You mm -hmm. want to start by doing no harm. Your doctor's creeds, don't do any more. Right. Don't make it worse than it already is. Right. And you want that, you want there to be muscle memory. You want the reaction to be automatic. And I think you learn how your body responds. And since I had been doing cave diving first for many, many years, I knew how I reacted. I had a couple scary incidents when I was cave diving and my natural tendency was to kind of freeze and think about the situation, take a deep breath and then act on it. Mm. When I got into base jumping and I'm going to Twin Falls, Idaho, jumping off a bridge that's 486 feet, a 5.5-second drop from uh, the exit to the water, mm. uh, and I'm opening, I'm pitching, say, at three seconds. I only have two and a half seconds to spare. And I thought, well, like if something goes wrong right after I open, am I going to respond the same way I do in cave diving where I'm going to stop, think, take a deep breath? It's going to be too late. Right. My instructor was telling me, I was like, well, what if you know you jump and you pitch and you know it doesn't open? He's like, well, what you could do is you can try to position your body so that you're vertical 
and then the bridle may come up alongside your body and then you can grab the bridle and pull it and get the canopy to come out. I was like, wow, will that work? He's like, no, but it'll give you something to do before you die. Because <laughs> <laughs> you just don't have enough right. time to deal with it in those situations. Um, so there's there's uh, you know low jumps and a lot of people get really excited about jumping off of a you know 180 foot building. The right. lowest I've done is about 220 feet, and that's I'm having someone do a pilot shoot assist. So they're holding my pilot shoot, right? And I jump, and that has two benefits. One, it makes it open really really fast, right? And two, since he's holding it, he directionally he can correct the canopy so that I'm on heading. Right. So I'm much more likely to not, to go straight and not have a 180 and come back and hit the wall or something, right? And um, in in the wingsuiting, you've got a lot more time. A lot of my flights are 45 seconds, mm. and I, I deploy, and I'm still fairly high above the ground. So even if I have line twists or something, I got a little bit more time to right. deal with it. So each situation varies a little bit. You have to know as a person how you respond to those things. Um, the incident in Switzerland taught me that I did react right away. Mm -hmm. I did respond quickly. So it, it was a bit of a comfort to me that the event happened and that I survived it and that I was able uh, to respond quickly and not just brain freeze right. and then have an issue. And respond correctly, mm -hmm. right? Not just uh, responding quickly with the wrong things is still the wrong things, right? Right. Um, uh, responding quickly and correctly is, uh, ha I've got to imagine, well, I've got two questions. First is, it feels like you skipped hang gliding somewhere in this process. Um, and the second is, on this journey, um, have you seen some of these things catch up with other people, unfortunately, as you've trained or learned? and Because um, um, it, it seems like it's a, it's not just extreme, in particular, in particularly the flying, um, the wingsuit flying, there's just not, there's not a lot of people that say, wow, that was a close call. Mm -hmm. Like, like either, either they served, you know, they survived or they did the things right and they made it. And that was cool. That was amazing. Or, um, not a lot of them that get a lot of second chances. Yeah. It's not a very forgiving sport. Skydiving, we have two canopies. So you've got your primary and then you've got a reserve that'll open automatically if you don't deploy right. the first one um, or you can deploy it yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, in base jumping, you only have one canopy. Um, it is a simpler configuration and more likely to open without issue, uh, but you still don't have the redundancy, which which makes me nervous. Right. It would be nice to have more redundancy, but right. because of the time that you typically have and the low altitude that you have, there's really not much use in a second canopy because it wouldn't be able to open quickly enough before you hit the ground very likely. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's a different configuration. Mm -hmm. um, why skip hang gliding? I don't know. You know, I, I, I saw it, but uh, it wasn't something that really piqued my interest. As you transition then, you've got this side of you, the extreme sports side, adventure side, super awesome, and you're over here in the IT world. How, how do you relate those two things, uh, extreme sports and it, it's a it's a hard job today for those of us. Just ask us those of us in the IT world, managing through the complexities of tools and infrastructure that you're supposed to understand how to safely and accurately deploy them to get the most value from them, not make yourself vulnerable, 
take full advantage of their power. Um, how do these two systems correlate in your world? Yeah, I was thinking about this several years ago and thinking I should do a presentation. <clears throat> the, the first things that popped in my head, which I think are the most obvious, is around redundancy. You really focus on eliminating single points of failure in mm -hmm. technology systems. Um, not only with with our servers, for instance, but mm -hmm. you know, all the routers, the switches, but the people as well mm -hmm. and the vendors that we work with. You, mm -hmm. you don't want to be dependent on any one thing. Mm -hmm. So when I go cave diving, I have multiple lights, mm -hmm. a, uh, a primary light. I have a backup light on each side of my harness. I usually, since I dive alone frequently, I have uh, another backup one in my pocket, and I have one on my mask that's really quick and easy to turn on if, mm -hmm. if my primary goes out. Mm -hmm. Two dive computers, um, uh, multiple tanks, two tanks, two independent tanks, two independent first and second stage regulators. Uh, you, normally, you would have two people, and I often do dive with, with uh, another uh, dive buddy, mm -hmm. but sometimes I, I dive alone. Mm -hmm. So being self-sufficient and having all the redundant gear that I need. Mm -hmm. in, in some cases, having an extra person along is actually can be uh, a negative mm -hmm. if you're going someplace really tight mm -hmm. and uh, you have another person with you that might be between you and the exit mm -hmm. and they get stuck and mm -hmm. you're stuck behind them and it's the only exit, that's kind of scary. So mm -hmm. in some places that I go, I actually prefer to be alone. Mm -hmm. In our technology systems, we want to have the redundancy. Uh, we also want to have policies and procedures that guide us. So in cave diving, we have five key rules. You know, you want to maintain a continuous guideline to the surface. You don't want to go beyond your training. Uh, you want to have going to the right depth for the gas that you're breathing. You want to maintain a redundant set of lights and so forth. And in technology systems, we want to have procedures that guide us so that we have repeatable processes. Right. If you just wing it, you may do it differently and you end up having problems. Right. Uh, if you are um, a rebreather diver, there's a long list of things that you step through to make what is, sure. What does rebreather mean? So a, a rebreather uh, is a loop so that you the air that you breathe out gets put back into the system. It gets scrubbed so that you can reuse the same gas over and over again and extend your dive and eliminate the bubbles in the environment. Hmm. So it's, an, it's a good tool and there's an appropriate place for it. It adds some additional risk that you have to be able to manage. Hmm. Um, in IT systems, you know, we're really one team hmm. and it's often you get these silos and uh, the whole company should be considered one team. I actually don't like that we have this terminology where we say technology and the business. Right. And more and more, I mean, technology needs to be considered as part of the business, right. just like marketing or operations or anything else. Right. In, uh, in skydiving, when we do these big ways, we might have, say, three planes, and you'll have different pods that form on, to make up a larger formation. Mm -hmm. And you often hear, oh, our, our plane's the best or our pod formed faster than your pod, you right. know, our group. And there's all these kind of internal competitions between the groups. But if you're trying to do a 100-way formation, it, you're not successful unless the whole 100 people right. get together and form that. If you have one person out of that 100 that's not in the formation, it doesn't count. So if the record's 90 people, and you do 100 and 99 are connected, 
that's not a record right. because the one person that was also claimed to be part of the group, the whole thing has to form. Right. And so from a business perspective, we really want to operate as, as a team. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, both things are complex. Technology is complex. The sports are complex. It may seem really simple. You just jump off the mountain mm -hmm. and you, you know, you pull your pilot chute and that's it. That's mm -hmm. simple. It gets really complex. And the more you get into it, the more you learn of all the things and the nuances of it. And the same thing with technology. Yeah. And you need to have the right skills. Well, how do you get those skills? You, know, you want to find mentors. I had some of the best mentors in the world helping me uh, and for cave diving. Ed Sorensen, really well known. He's rescued several cave divers, uh, done all sorts of exploration work. And he has mentored me, done a lot of training with me. Mm -hmm. And it's the difference in getting that mentorship or not having it as night and day and mm -hmm. can be life and death. Mm -hmm. I really like the concept in technology. I don't like so much sending team members to, to training. I like bringing in consultants who are really, really knowledgeable at what they do and to sit next to the team and have the team drive, mm -hmm. kind of like pair programming that we do mm -hmm. where two developers work together on one computer to do something. There's a lot of benefits in doing that. You're transferring knowledge, you're learning, the person's checking the other person's work, you got two brains thinking through the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, when you bring in someone who's you know done load balancing for a database, 27 times and tried it four different ways and knows the pros and cons, I think you gain so much more knowledge from it. You send them to a class, a month goes by before they implement it. They, they don't remember it all. They can't apply it. They get stuck on something and they don't, don't know what to do. Right. So finding mentors both in technology and extreme sports I think is really key to success. Yeah. Um, you know, getting the skills is – it's partly our responsibility but also finding the right people to help you get those skills. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I, I, I think it's really valuable to <coughs> to keep all those things in mind and to take advantage of, of uh, other resources and, and also to enjoy it, right? You want to enjoy the ride. Mm -hmm. um, I got into programming because I just love to program. Mm -hmm. And you, it becomes a career and you get deadlines – thing you get high pressure mm -hmm. and you got to remember it's like you know you you got into this because you had a passion about it you wanted to do it so how do you how do you keep it fun right um how do you share this experience with the people that you're working with you know surround yourself with people that are passionate about what they do mm -hmm. when when i go to an event and everybody loves what they're doing we were doing a heli boogie in in northern italy in the dolomites mm. And I'm with all these guys, a variety of ages, young, mm -hmm. you know, guys that are like in their early 20s and us older guys in mm -hmm. our 50s and stuff. And, mm -hmm. But we're all of this kindred spirit that we're on this beautiful mountain. Mm -hmm. We're getting up early in the morning. We get to the top of the mountain. There's a layer of clouds that we can't jump, but it's beautiful. The sun's, you know, up above it. We've got mm -hmm. this beautiful view. We wait for it to clear. Mm -hmm. The helicopter just dropped us off. We watch it do this nosedive down the mountain, really spectacular. And, like, all of us in unison go, wow, and then started laughing. Like, right. I can't believe we get to do this. We are so fortunate that we get to come here and do this and fly. You know, they, you know, they dreamed of doing this 100 years ago. And in technology, if you can surround yourself with people that are passionate about the things that they do mm -hmm. and you can learn from them and you can find <coughs> – you can have a mission. A lot of people seek fun and fun is nice but I think having a purpose is even better. And one of the most memorable experiences I have is being at Blinds.com 
and building a new e-commerce platform with you know 20 other people and seeing that first order go through on the new, this new platform and for it to be one of the reasons that Home Depot buys us because we've got a highly configurable e-commerce platform that they can use for all their complex customizable products that they have. That was really, really rewarding. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Blinds.com, we also had this concept of enjoy the ride. You want to have fun at what you're doing. I'm at CPAP.com. Uh, CPAP What's your role there? Uh, CTO. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was actually hired, my, my boss and uh, him and his father had started the business. Uh, Johnny was in college and he wrote the code for the original system. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the code that I'm dealing with my team deals was actually written by our CEO. Wow. And uh, we tease him, say he stayed to a CEO role. He doesn't get to write code anymore. But he did amazing things, right? right. Like he's, he started this, him and his buddy, like literally in a garage growing the system to uh, have CPAP.com. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, own, we have Sleeping.com as well. We were mm -hmm. talking about Sleeping right. earlier. So we think our future is going to be Sleeping.com. That's mm -hmm. going to be our primary property mm -hmm. versus CPAP.com. Mm -hmm. Because CPAP is a technology where sleeping is a uh, condition of life, right? Yeah, it's so much broader. Right. And um, we really want to take advantage of that platform to not just sell products, but to really guide people towards a better night's sleep. Like right. if we make our purpose to help people get a good night's sleep right. and whatever technology that may include, whatever uh, connection we can make for them with other people that are suffering similar uh, problems and bring the community together to bring doctors and uh, different specialists into that discussion, harness artificial intelligence so that uh, our, our customers can 24-7 have a place to go to ask questions, you know, a chat GBT or something similar where we can have this interactive um, natural language speech and, and connection and get that help, but connecting them to real people as well and right. to each other to find the right solution, get them the right resources that they need. Yeah. I, so we're going to take a 90-second, I promise, no more than 90-second segue, but you just inspired me or reminded me, and maybe this doesn't even make the podcast, but we'll see. Have you ever heard of the author C.S. Lewis? Oh, yeah. Written a bunch of children's sure. books, Christian apology, all kinds of different things, philosopher. I read all the books to my kids growing up. <sighs> so if you'll remember, um, not not in chronological order of the story, but not in the order that he wrote the books, um, the first book in the story of Narnia is called um, The Magician's Nephew. The Magician, as it turns out, is the guy who sort of through his bad behavior accidentally creates this world of Narnia or he empowers the magic in Narnia. And the nephew, if you're most of our listeners will be familiar with the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And mm -hmm. the nephew's the guy who owns the house that the wardrobe's in, that they all go do these adventures. So it's in that book, The Magician's Nephew, I believe it is, the nephew loves the magician, his uncle. And his uncle's um, almost irredeemable. And at the end of the book, he says to Aslan, What can we do for my uncle? And he said, well, your uncle has so hardened his heart to the things that I would give him as gifts and to change his heart, there's really not much I can do. But there is one thing I can do, and I can give him the best sleep of his life because he has not slept well in forever. And he did that. And I that stuck with me now 
50 years later, I don't know, 45 years later, I've, I'm in my, I'm closer to 60 than 50. But it, I just remember even C.S. Lewis in this unusual kid's book knew the value mm. of really, for a lot of us adults, not drug-induced, not alcohol-induced, deep, regenerative sleep where you wake up the next day, not like, oh, this hurts or that hurts or it's too early or I had to get up four times during the night or, sh- or whatever, but you wake up and you're like, wow, that was amazing. Um, doesn't happen that often. So I, I hope the, the program works out where you can help with whatever the tools and mechanisms are to help human beings sleep better. It is, uh, we were talking off, I didn't even know about sleeping.com. We were talking kind of just quickly about sleep on a side conversation uh, before we even started. And there's so many conversations about just getting back to the basics and sleep is one of them to really sleep well, um, but not artificially enhance sleep, just a, a sleep that um, uh, just rejuvenates. Yeah. One of the concepts that they have, the, the term the doctors uses is, um, what is it, uh, sleep hygiene. Uh, which I don't really like that term, mm-hmm. uh, but it's creating the environment for you to be able to sleep well. You know, having the room darkening shades, which were really popular at blinds.com. People wanted to completely blacken out their room. Right. Uh, I just recently started using a mask that I bought on sleeping.com, mm. and, um, you know, it really blocks out the light uh, and, and has helped me sleep. Mm. I really feel I need to take advantage of this because, you know, as I've gotten older, I find it harder and harder to get a good night's sleep. Yeah. And here I'm working for sleeping.com. You know, I've got yeah. all of the resources right at my fingertips. Yeah. I really need to take advantage of it. It'll be cool to see how it, um, how it plays out. One of the things I wanted to ask you, um, I wrote down that phrase, fun is nice, purpose is better. Another way for me to say that mission, purpose, I, I don't know if they're exactly interchangeable, but the military and me, uh, reminds me of two big two big things we were always preached at. Troop welfare, mission accomplishment. If you don't take care of your troops, uh, we fail. If we don't accomplish the mission, we fail. So um, they spent a lot of time making sure we understood the boundaries with which we operated in between the Geneva Convention and the Uniform Code of Military Justice. What are, um, how do we take care of each other and the troops that we're responsible for, even if that's my peer, not necessarily somebody that I lead. And then what's my mission? And what, what happens when I get, when an, when an obstacle appears in front of us, how do we adjust to complete our mission? Or if we, to complete it, either is impossible or it's uh, such a disaster that it's, we can't complete, we shouldn't complete it. Um, you know, that, that's not always easy, but even back to purpose, uh, in some way, I don't, I don't know if this is directly related, but I find we have a pretty strong culture here, not a perfect culture because we're just a company, but uh, within the company, we have a pretty good culture. One of the th- little experiments we'll do sometimes is ask people, um, we'll give them 60 seconds and ask them to tell us what they're grateful for. And if you can only get to two or three things, either you haven't given a lot of thought or the circumstances are unusual or, or something like that, but we try to practice what am I, what am I grateful for? And how do I really think about that and get cognizant of that? And when I can combine an attitude of gratitude with purpose or mission, it makes it a really authentic place to work, Mm -hmm. which we really appreciate. We don't want people just, we don't want them to come in pretending everything's okay. If things aren't okay at home or life's hard sometimes, we've gone through a pandemic, there's all kinds of 
things in the world that are going on. We have a number of people from Eastern Europe that work with us, that their families on either side of these conflicts are involved, and it's complicated. It's hard. So we want them to bring all of them, but we want to make sure we're aligned with gratitude. How do we come together culturally as a people group to support each other? And how are we aligned on purpose? And so that helps steer us when um, we're hurting or obstacles appear um, or whatever, and we've got to navigate through that. That similar to what you're discussing? Yeah, I, I feel those those feelings. My one of my best friends, um, Constantine, is mm-hmm. uh, just graduated as a Green Beret recently, oh. and uh, hua hua. Yeah, he uh, he's been a really great friend, and I've known him for about eight years now. And my parents died about seven years ago, mm. and that was a really rough time. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was him and his wife were really instrumental in keeping me. Uh, engaged and focused and we did crazy things. We'd go, you know, burn canopies and yeah. light them on fire with Are you an allowed incendiary to round. Say and, all the things that because you know special forces will get a little uh yeah, they like to have mention, fun, but they don't want you to tell all their secrets. Yeah, yeah. No, we, we certainly had a lot of fun. <laughs> and I won't I won't say any last names. Uh but we did uh, a lot of crazy things and he kept me really engaged and focused and helped me get through a really, really difficult time. And, uh, you know, at CPAP.com, one of our, uh, things that we talk about is, is grandma, grandma care, that mm-hmm. we want to treat our customers with the same care that you would expect anybody to apply towards your grandma if, if they were helping them. Mm-hmm. And so that's really imbued in the whole company. And we bring that up constantly. <clears throat> well, is this grandma care? Mm-hmm. Is this grandma care for our customer? Mm-hmm. It, se- it sounds like the, um. You've got a you've got a uh, a nature that gravitates not just to the extreme sports, but to um, but the compl- the complacency, the uh, redundancy, and the systems and checks that you need that help you to thrive in that world. I don't know how you lead any organization, much less an online organization, if you don't have that same focus. It it, it just feels like. The systems and tools that empower us, the chat GPTs, which is just an open AI tool or any of these other tools that that <clears throat> can so help uh, our brand, our customers, help us to deliver grandma care, they can also be arrayed against us. Like it is a, it's a full contact sport out there building uh, infrastructure in the world. We saw famously the pipeline that was impacted by malware, somebody... Um, took advantage of uh, system exploits that they that they um, could then interfere with business operations and held them ransom and it impacted. And I'm not suggesting that in your business, but just that in my business, in the data center business, the ideas of the world, the data of the world lives in my business. I have to have redundancies. It, that Sheriff 911 system has to remain up. Um, not all systems are impacted the same way, but if I've got uh, critical infrastructure, which we do in our world, have to maintain it up. And that also makes it a high profile mm-hmm. target. And so we're constantly managing both our IT systems, our physical boundaries, our other security and logical systems. How, don't you have to have that same perspective in your world? Oh, absolutely. So from a business perspective, you know, the PMI, Project Management Institute, focuses yeah. on on project management best practices. And it's all about risk-based project management. And you got to identify all those potential risks that are there. And then you want to have a contingency plan um, and you want to have a mitigation plan. You know, I, you know, mitigation, how do I prevent this from happening? And if it happens, what's my contingency plan to deal with it? Right. 
and in extreme sports, you have the same thing, right? You always plan and, and you think about the risk. Okay, I could have line twists. What am I going to do to get out of the line twist? Maybe I pitch and my canopy doesn't open. What do I do? And so really <clears throat> drilling into you, what are the things that you need to do? Identifying those risks. If, if I'm talking to a team, I go, well, what are the risks of this project? Mm-hmm. Well, we can't think of anything. Everything's good. It's like, okay, well, I can rattle off <laughs> 20 off the top of my head. Like we need to think about this more. Right. You know, the teams could get pulled away onto other projects. Someone could get sick. We could have another pandemic. Uh, the, our data center could be – we, we had one data someone. center that was like, well, there's so much redundancy of the data center. That will never be an issue. And right. then there was uh, a chemical spill uh, in, in Baton Rouge and right. prevented anybody from getting anywhere near the data center for like two days. Right. Uh, hurricanes, fires, all of the like. There's so many things that can go wrong. You kind of yeah. got to be a pessimist as a project manager right. to constantly be thinking about all of those things, right. and then having a plan for addressing each one of them. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to ask you to confess. I'll confess. Um, in a previous role uh, at a major Texas university, who shall go unnamed, uh, I had. Um, I built a couple brand new servers and I was super, man, these were Mac daddies. Pretty sure they were Dell's. This is a long time ago and I was all excited about them. It was a Friday afternoon. I hooked them up to the network. <clears throat> uh, what I thought was the internal LAN, uh, like a um, like a configuration network, out-of-band network. It, it wasn't. It was the WAN. And this was the days pre-firewall at this particular massive campus. And uh, I got a call that after the next day. Um, Hey, we don't understand. What do you guys got running over there in your department? What do you mean? 40% of the university traffic, the entire campus's traffic is coming out of the, uh, the ports in in this room. Oh no. So I go over there and I had made these honey pots. Didn't even know it. I had no antivirus, no protection. They weren't behind a firewall, nothing. They were just going to get patched up on Monday morning and whatever. And I had plugged them inadvertently into the, not an out-of-band network, but an in-band network. The hilarious thing was when we got to, of course, we take them offline, traffic immediately stops. Um, Thankfully, they weren't, they hadn't been trusted into anything. So they couldn't, there's no compromise, like getting them out of the box. And what we discovered uh, was that somebody had obviously hacked into them, but had loaded 1980s Tom Cruise movies that were dubbed in French and were distributing them. I was like, I didn't even get good naughty <laughs> stuff. Like nothing, nothing like like nothing to tell some crazy story later. No, it was cocktail in French and it was uh, taps and, um, you know, some of these other uh, movies. It was absolutely her- hilarious. But yeah, that was... Uh, I want to say it was the mid '90s, late '90s, but it was these '80s Tom Cruise movies. But anyway, just just a not paying attention, plugged into the wrong switch. It was the in-band switch, not the out-of-band switch. Making uh, small changes that allow you to more easily back it out, and always having a, a, a backup plan or a backout strategy. So whenever we do deployments, like we were doing, we're on a sprint schedule of two weeks. And so we would do all of our stories and then deploy everything. Mm-hmm. And we started deploying more frequently. And now we average eight deployments a week, 16 po- uh, deployments per sprint, mm. feature-based. So we do our branching and merging strategy. 
where we've got our main branch, we've got a development branch, and then developers create feature branches off of that, make the coding changes, and when we deploy, we typically deploy you know, a small handful of features at a time. And mm -hmm. if there's ever a problem, we can roll back a feature. Mm -hmm. In cave diving, we have a continuous guideline to the surface. Mm -hmm. So from the very entrance, we put in a, a, a line and we attach it to what they call the gold line, which is a permanent line that runs through the cave. And then there are places where there are branches that go out into the cave and we'll take a spool and we'll attach it to the primary line and we'll run it across to the jump line so we can explore these other passages. And you have to obtain a certain level of certification before you can do these jumps so you, you're proficient at it. And in databases, we also have... Um, uh, you may do a multiple set of inserts or deletes or updates, but if something goes wrong on one of those, you want to be able to get back to where you were from. So you can right. do a rollback right. on a database, or if everything went well, you can do a They commit. call that last known good or something like that. Right. Yeah. So you want to always be able to get back to where you were. Whenever you want to do a deployment, you want to have a rollback procedure to right. get to where you were. Um, but occasionally, you know, things go wrong. Uh, if it's outside forces, you know, I often have wondered if all of these people, these hackers that are, seem to be pretty smart and do amazing things, that if they just applied all of that knowledge and effort into something legitimate, they would probably be very successful. Yeah. Wouldn't our life be easier if we didn't have to worry about security? Yeah. But we have to focus on that and, uh, and make arrangements for it. But when things do go wrong, uh, you know, one, you want to be monitoring the systems. So monitoring is really critical in technology systems. I always tell my team, like, we should be informing the business when there was a problem. They shouldn't be informing us. So if we're monitoring the systems right and we're tracking them, we send out a production notice anytime something goes wrong. And we use the production notice to give them updates on the status. So we really strive to be the first one to see that there's a problem. We can send out a production notice and say, hey, uh, we see that there's some slowage happening on the site. We're above our SLA. The team is looking at it. We'll keep you posted. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I tell the team, we always want to improve. We always want to get better at what we're doing. But even if we maintain a consistent level, but we're informing people better, faster, more accurately around the status of things, their impression of what we're doing will be better. They'll feel we're doing a better job than we actually are because mm -hmm. we're keeping them informed mm -hmm. and they understand what we're doing. When something does go wrong, you want to learn from that experience. So I've had plenty of experiences in extreme sports where I've learned from them and it makes me a safer diver or skydiver or base jumper or whatever. We want to learn from those things. And so we do an RCA, a root cause analysis. Mm -hmm. And in uh, base jumping, for instance, we have something called uh, BFL, uh, the base fatality list. And it's a private group. You have to get into the group by being a base jumper. Mm -hmm. And the agreement is, is that you won't share any of this knowledge outside because often information is posted there before – Family members may even know that something happened. Right. I had a very good friend, Chris Burns, best wingsuit pilot in the world, very good friend of mine, spent three weeks with him in Italy. Uh, we both went to Italy our first year, met him there uh, like seven years ago. And we spent three weeks last year together, and he really mentored me and trained me and allowed me to do jumps that I would have never believed that I would have been able to do. Mm -hmm. Two weeks after I left Italy, he died. Mm. And it was the most shocking thing to me. I've, I've lost several friends to cave diving and to base jumping. 
And it's a horrible thing, but you want to learn from it. And mm -hmm. so we list where they were, what the conditions were, anything at all that we can think of is included in this report. And then the collective group of people discuss it, what happened, what could they have done to prevent it, and that overall knowledge improves. We do the same thing in cave diving. We do accident analysis. Pilots do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And it's really helpful. So from our technology systems, we start out with a paragraph that says, you know, at this time, this event happened, here's the business impact, the financial impact. That first paragraph's really dedicated for the entire company to be able to read it and understand it. And then we also have what we're going to do to prevent it from happening again. Mm -hmm. And then there's the technical detail section, which is much longer, which outlines step by step, here's the log information, here's what's happened. And then we have tickets that will say, when we say, what are we going to do to prevent it from happening again, that has to result in an actionable item. Mm -hmm. So it is a story that goes onto our backlog, which we can keep track of to make sure. And usually, often, it results in it being better monitoring. Um, so the system went down. How can we prevent it? Well, one, what can we do to make it redundant? What can we do to notice that there was an issue sooner than, mm -hmm. than what we found it so that we're constantly improving and maturing our systems by doing that, that analysis? It is um, – I have a lot of experience with RCA here. One of the things that – we publish ours to our customers. Mm, wow. <laughs> and um, – it is, I'm imagining when you did the, whether it's for baselining or cave diving, because you don't, it doesn't sound like you have a outside professional group, like with a pilot, you know, the FAA sends in a, a group. It, it takes a lot of um, integrity to work through that in a clinical way and be very transparent. Now, if you're the victim, you're not there in the extreme sports because you're gone, usually. Um, if, if in our digital infrastructure world, we have a failure, process failure, um, procedural failure, uh, something, gap, we, an unidentified gap that we just missed. So nothing, there, there was a failure of performance, but there wasn't, a, there wasn't something... Um, that we didn't do that we had known to do that we just skipped. It was just a blind spot. It takes a lot of integrity to be really honest and transparent in there. And um, it, it's remarkable that both those extreme sports do that because it's, it's human nature, I find, to either defend, uh, you know, um, defend, uh, you know, if you had been in this spot, you would have, this is the action you would have taken. We're not, we're not here to attack or defend. We're just here to understand. So that takes a lot of integrity to both as the investigator and, and that person being investigated. And sometimes here that's the same thing, whether it's a cops, it's an IT organization, a data center company or whatever, and then put really strong governance around it. So it's believable. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then there's accountability, whether it at a minimum it's accountability within the organization uh, because of the nature of our business. And we also wanted to differentiate ourselves from our competitors. We talked about some of them offline. We publish them. Many times we allow them in our bridge during a, 
uh, crisis so they can he- not interfere, but hear and or their real time updates, things like that. Um, just because of the nature of what we do. So when you do you do you guys publish? I don't. We're not in the same business. We're related mm-hmm. to it, but we're we're in that digital infrastructure world. But we're not in the same business. Um, how do you wrap governance around your RCAs? Is that just an internal thing that you maintain, or do you? We, we don't uh, expose it to anybody outside the company, but it is shared in our production notice so that anybody can read it and see it. They're kept in a common place. It's been so popular and so well-received that um, as a leadership team, we've extended that not only only to technology, but also to business. And that's been a little bit more challenging because sure. from a technology's perspective, we can keep it very technical. We can right. review the logs and right. we see exactly what happened. There's not as much interpretation of what happened. Right. We, we have results that we can look at. Right. You have to have an environment of trust and people have to feel safe in exposing problems where where the issue may have been um, um, poor performance, uh, lack of following a policy or procedure. And so people may feel vulnerable Mm -hmm. and you need to have a cultural, you have to have a culture that accepts mistakes Mm -hmm. and that you learn from it and move on. If it's used to place blame on people, then those RCAs may not maintain a level of accuracy. People are going to start doing CYA in that RCA. From a business perspective, it's not as much hard and fast data to follow. Like, okay, we didn't reach our sales number. You know, what? Let's do an RCA on that. Right. Well, it, there's a lot more that's interpreted about why it went bad, and right. so I think those are more challenging to write. Now, my boss has brought up the idea. Well, these RCAs are so great, and we're learning so much from it. But we always do it around the negative side of things. What if we have something that goes surprisingly well? Right. Maybe we should do an RCA to really hone in on why it went well and can we learn from that as well and and make future things potentially more successful. Yeah. I think that's an interesting concept and I haven't heard anybody else think of an RCA with that spin. Thanks for sharing that story with Chris, about Chris. That's a uh, – you know, those stories like that, um, people that we love, they're so remarkable – especially whether it's they live so uh, you know, brilliantly and amazingly, but it, it reminds us there's kryptonite in the world. Mm-hmm. Like we're all, we're all vulnerable to kryptonite at some point. Kryptonite may be different uh, for us, but um, it's no respecter of persons. I have a, another good friend that I had back in 2008 died in the cave that I've been spending a lot of time in just over the last three weeks. Mm. Uh, Richard Mork was rebreather diver and uh, had an oxygen toxicity hit you know oxygen at depth is is toxic and Mm -hmm. his sensors weren't correct he was an engineer and a lot of engineers are attracted to cave diving because of the technical aspect there's a lot of gear there's a lot of tinkering there's a lot of math that you have to do to get everything to work right he was very very meticulous but he didn't replace some 80 dollar oxygen sensors in a system because they were six months old and he said they'll be fine I was supposed to be on that dive, and I ended up backing out because I had some work commitments and so forth. And on that first dive, he got about 2,000 feet back, went to go through kind of a restricted area, had to work really hard because there was high flow, and he died. And I created a memorial at that spot and created a little plaque. 
and placed it at that location and it's become a memorial now. Well, now there are four memorials there where other divers that have died and people have placed plaques there. And uh, my parents died seven years ago and I placed their ashes there. Mm. And someday when I died... Were they also divers? They were not. Oh, okay. They're just honoring them in that spot. I was honoring them in yeah. that spot. My ashes are going to be placed there someday. I've got some yeah. friends lined up that are responsible for right. taking the ashes there at some point. And... Um, you know, I go back, I've gone back there a couple of times in the last few weeks, and I pay my respects, and I, I think about the friendship that I had, and it's, uh, but it can be serious business, mm -hmm. and uh, people follow their passions, and they love what they do, and we're all going to die, and so I don't want to be afraid of doing things that I get a tremendous amount of joy from. Mm -hmm. I have so many great experiences from the things that I've done. And, uh, you know, having those relationships with people are so important, enjoying the ride and sharing those experiences. Mm -hmm. And I was told one time that I shouldn't make friends with the people I work with, that, I, you know, if you get personal, especially if they report to you, then it's difficult to make good decisions. And I just resisted that. It didn't seem right to me at all. I mm -hmm. want to be friends with the people I work with. I'm, mm -hmm. If I'm going to spend that much time with them, and I can be friends with the people that are on my team and make the difficult decision to do things that I might not like to do. Um, but I, I want to have that passion. I want to share experiences and be able to have that joy with the people that I work with. I'm becoming more and more convinced that the business ideas that were introduced in the early to mid-80s, whatever they're, give the creators the benefit of the doubt that they meant good, so so spectacularly changed um, the culture of business uh, that it's it's we're trying to recover now and get back to um, uh, a different state of mind. A friend of mine who I met out of Houston, um, he's the president of Improving Houston. His name's uh, Devlin Lyles. Do you know Devlin? I know Devlin yeah. very well. He was on our team at Blinds.com for years. Was he? Yeah, okay, yeah. I didn't know that. We How have a close bizarre. relationship. Look at that. How cool is that? Um, talk to me uh, last year about ethical capitalism. We're, we got a, He's coming on the show again, I think, in May. Um, May or June, I forget now. But he is, he is one of the people that really got me thinking about um, I got introduced to him uh, through a mutual acquaintance and started listening to some of the things he was talking about. It's not his original ideas. It's just ideas that he's passionate about and he espouses. And I love him, which is not to say that capitalism does not have its sins. It's got plenty of sins. But it's a, it's a matter of what you're comparing things to, right? And in uh, ethical capitalism, as defined by the guy who started Whole Foods and then Devlin articulates this and others, is, um, is such a great... Uh, tool that comes along uh, side people. And when you were talking about, you know, becoming friends with the people that you work with, and it, it disrupts this idea of the purpose of business is profit. My, I, I build 100, 200 plus megawatt facilities. We're starting campuses that are 1,000 plus megawatts all over the world. We're, we're in this business. We are the digital infrastructure. There's nothing that happens on your phone that is not in one of my data centers. There's no piece of music. There's no formula. There's no battle plan. There's no dive log. There's no whatever that's digitized. That's not somewhere. We're the sky for the cloud. If you're in a cloud, it's in one of my data centers somewhere, at least part of it. Um, and, and so 
it's important to us that we are profitable. We cannot build billions of dollars worth of infrastructure without being profitable. But it's not our purpose or any more than your purpose is drinking or eating or sleeping. It's how you are the healthiest version of you, but your purpose are the many of these things that we've talked about. And my, my guests have heard me, or my uh, uh, audience has heard me say this many times. But Devlin really helps articulate and gets me, um, and hopefully I'm able to influence my friends, family, and coworkers around me um, how are we aligning to purpose and how do we help human beings flourish and how do we do that in my case in the world of technology? Having those open conversations. So I, I like the concept of uh, you want to open up opportunities that you have in your company to employees. They want to, you want to be able to have a career path and growth, growth opportunities for them. So we always try to open up those opportunities first to internal employees and we want them to apply if they're interested. If they're not ready to do it, you need to have the discussion with them around what they're lacking and help them create a plan. So if this is what they want to do, if this is a role they want to move into, how can you help them grow into that role? What are they lacking? What do they need to learn in order to be able to be an eligible candidate the next time an opportunity like that rolls around? And that is so much appreciated by, by people when you give them that attention and help them get to where they want to go. As I've gotten older, I, I've met most of my career goals. That's like I, I really enjoy what I, I do. And I was, I was meeting with Jay, the founder of Blinds.com, and I had shared my list of principles for my life that I follow. Mm -hmm. And um, he goes, you know, this is really focused on you. Yeah, you include your family as part of it. But where do you reach other people? And I realized I really it was time for me to add another a goal, a seventh goal, and mm -hmm. that was to really help people achieve their goals. Mm -hmm. And I've been down this path. What can I do with my team to help them achieve and grow and do the things that they want to do? Mm -hmm. And out of those items, it's been the most rewarding thing mm -hmm. for me when I'm when I find an opportunity to share something with somebody and they benefit from it and it, it helps them in their career and their life in general it's an incredibly rewarding feeling um, in cave diving we have this after a dive we do a retro and you, you have to be able to talk very openly and honestly because you know it's it's a life or death matter potentially hey this happened on the dive it concerned me we didn't have good communication and so forth and our, the goal is with all cave divers to, is to be able to have that conversation and accept that feedback. Maybe you agree with it, maybe you don't, but to openly listen and learn from that. Mm -hmm. And so there are so many people within an organization, such a vast amount of experience. The more you can share that knowledge and be willing and open to listen is really valuable. We do a thing at, at CPAP.com that our, our founder, Johnny, um, pushes for and around accountability, uh, but also sharing, we do this about once a quarter. We write down for each of the people on our leadership team something that we appreciate about them and something that we would like to see them do to improve. And it's a tough thing to do, right? Mm -hmm. It's easy to do the part of, of what you like, but when you're telling your peers or you're telling your boss, you know, I wish you would be better in this area, it's really hard, but it's amazing how each one of those people appreciate the feedback on how they can improve more 
than the kudos they get for the thing that they're doing well. Right. You're, you're surrounded by people that you have respect for, and they're saying, you know, Larry, you don't respond to our GChat messages as, as quickly as we'd like you to. Now, I could get defensive and say, well, yeah, but some of the times I'm trying to deal real right. work and I'm head down and I can't right. be constantly checking right. on these messages. But instead, it's like, okay, like I'm going to do, how can I do better and yet still maintain the focus that I need to maintain? And it's a balance that you have to do. And we do that with each person on the team. And I think it's a very valuable exercise. And it actually creates a bond between the team when you have that level of openness with them. I completely agree. I um, once upon a time led the uh, solution engineer group here at our organization. And, you know, it's a very, it's a complex task building solutions for these big, massive organizations. And one of the things we try to do about quarterly is just have a, um, with my leadership group, is, um, and I encourage that they would have it with their direct reports, is a very similar thing. But one of the things we identified, Larry, or at least I identified, um, some they would bring to me what their directs would report to them like they'd like uh, to see them improve on. For example, GChat response time. And one of the things I tried to caution them with is um, while while that is a could be a worthy goal, it's only worthy goal to me. I've got a two criteria. One, um, what's the minimum standard in that area? And two, what is it that Larry's world class at? If you're world class, if the reason why you're here is because these one or two things and you're good enough at GChat, for example, that to get better, to move from a C plus to a B minus, because it's probably not native to you, means I can't get you from an A plus to an A plus plus. I don't know if I want to invest a lot of time in this. We may just have to live with, Larry's not that great at GChat response, <laughs> right? Get him a personal assistant, or I wish you would spell, you know, your your uh, grammar was better. And I'm not trying to make light of it because there's a lot of gold that comes out of that. Ooh, that's true. But um, Michael Phelps won all these gold medals, and I remember sort of a conversation like this. And this analyst said, you know, there's all these different parts to swimming. There's the there's the entry. There's the flip. There's the stroke. There's the the strategy during the race of, you know, as a sprint, like all of these things come into it. Michael is world-class at two or maybe three things. The rest of it, his coach is like, can you get into the water without landing in the wrong lane or whatever it was like these two or three, you know, the, of the 15 things, 12 of them, I, I just want you at minimum competency level. The other three, in particular, the other one or two, B, I want you to improve by 0.01%. If you win by point oh, by a butterfly wing, you get the gold medal. And we don't even remember who he built, beat, everybody, as far as we're concerned. And that is a, for me anyway, that's been a balance of how, if I'm going to talk a lot, well, give me a microphone and let me be entertaining and whatever. To talk less probably is not a goal I'm going to be great at. <laughs> so be better at these things. And it's, it's that balance. I love that you're in an organization that trust each other enough to have these kinds of conversations because it's not easy to do it. Our nature is to be defensive. <clears throat> I was just reading the, something the other day in a, that's not a religious conversation, but in a scripture that said, look, when you have a conversation where you need to correct somebody or you want to give them advice, do it in private 
not this way. And if you're celebrating a success or should, you know, recognition, and we know this from every management program on there, mm-hmm. do it in this very public way. And so to be able to trust each other to have those things without it and the integrity as we were talking about before, where it doesn't become a um not only I feel defensive, but people are piling on. That's a unique culture. And uh, kudos to you guys over there at CPEP.com if you're able to foster and facilitate that. I, I had a few employees in the past where uh, just about every week one of them would come to me and tell me about somebody else on the team that I should fire. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> like, like, I have this, you need to communicate with each other and try to sort it out. And if you can't, you should schedule a meeting with me and that person right? and the three of us get together and let's talk about it. And if you guys are in conflict, maybe I can help break the tie. Right. I want to see you guys try to resolve it first. Yeah. You got to have the communication. Critical conversation is, is so important. And I think somewhat some of the political correctness that we have has prevented us from having the open, honest communication that we yeah. need to have to understand each other and to move on. Yeah. With the pendulum swung from, madman and anything goes and insult and craziness <laughs> to we're afraid to be truthful and if we're afraid to be truthful um and politically correct we end up in almost as bad a spot anyway so yeah. uh but it that takes trust mm-hmm. that takes trust and integrity to get there and um that's not built overnight so well we've we've talked for a bit what haven't we talked about that we should have touched on is there anything we've missed so far you know Drilling what you're going to do ahead of time is really mm-hmm. important. So we do in skydiving when you're trying to get, say, 100 people to all do this complex connection and everybody has to be in a particular spot and they all have to be connected or it doesn't count. We do what's called dirt diving and we spend over and over again on the ground simulating the idea of loading the plane, like just getting onto the plane, we practice, making sure we're in the right order, getting out of the plane, we practice a lot. Like how do we make that as efficient as possible? Visualizing the approach to the formation and getting in the right spot and then safely separating from the group by exiting at a particular time, Mm -hmm. we we usually go in waves. So the outer group leaves first, and then the next group leaves, and then the, the last group drops uh, at a, a lower altitude and then disperses. So we get both vertical and horizontal separation. And we practice those things over and over again. If you have a disaster recovery plan and you've been doing backups, but you've never tested your backups, you've never simulated an outage and what it takes to actually build the environment, when you have an actual outage, like in Houston, potentially... Uh, hurricane and flooding and everybody disperses from the city and now you're going to try to implement your disaster recovery plan because your network's down that's much much harder and less likely to be successful um you know i've i've really encouraged all the managers to have laptops for their team and for everybody to work remote which which COVID actually had the advantage of getting everybody working remote <clears throat> and providing the opportunities <clears throat> for companies to be more prepared for business continuity. Right. Uh, if, if you've only worked in the office and you have desktop machines and now you're having to try to work someplace else, like how do you get them the equipment? They can't, they don't know how to log into the VPN. You have a million problems to deal with. Right. But if you have everybody working remote or at least working remote a couple of times a month Mm -hmm. so that everybody knows how to connect, Mm -hmm. all their software is current, it's all up to date, 
and you do trial runs of your disaster recovery. And, and I want to do one. I want to do one this year that we planned for. On this date, we're going to execute it, mm-hmm. and we're going to learn from it. We're going to write down what we need to improve on, and then we're going to create tasks that help us achieve that. Then I'm going to spring one on you. Right. Maybe it's a Saturday night. Maybe it's two o'clock in the afternoon on a Monday. Who knows? But it's going to be a surprise. And let's see how we do and learn from it. We've talked about drilling a lot here. It seems like in the last six months, several people talking about the ability to learn and in particular, the impact of technology that you cannot learn without moving. It was this uh, Neil Martin who was on here recently, um, who's a uh, uh, psychologist and marketer and these other things. He's like human beings, technologies allowed us to not move. We think we can just learn from a screen. It's very difficult to do when you're talking about dirt diving or so many of these things that we do. You have to go through the when you drive, you can watch the video on how to drive, but then you got to go drive and you got to practice a million times or park or whatever. If you don't do it, um, you can you can get a date off your date app, but if you don't have the ability to interact with that person you're sitting across from and have practiced it, you're not going to be very successful. And so it's that combination of this tech but moving. Um, to do these uh, DR things. I, I love to see that correlation between mm-hmm. sport and IT. Drilling is super important. Yeah. A couple other good concepts is, uh, you know, complacency can be really bad. And yeah. I'm, I'm showing Dave this picture of me oh my with gosh. a bloody nose and a broken wrist and thumb. And uh, some friends and I went out to uh, Twin Falls, Idaho to jump off the bridge in preparation to go to Moab. We're, we're real base jumpers. Right. We're going to go be badasses in Moab and we'll warm up at the bridge. And on our second jump, my buddy broke his foot or broke his leg. I broke my wrist and my thumb. And our third person, the most experienced jumper, twisted his ankle. The wind changed direction right when we jumped. And uh, I turned towards the bridge thinking the wind was coming that direction and it wasn't. And I landed super hard. I went from my from my butt to my face in about a half a second and uh, uh, cracked my tailbone, broke up my face, spent the day in the hospital, and we limped home, uh, never got to Moab. And, you know, you got to stay really vigilant and stay alert and look for the changing conditions and make adjustments. And if you've had 100% uptime for a year and everything's gone smoothly you can get complacency and think we've got everything in order. And, yeah. it, you know, one of my cave diving instructors said, uh, you know, there are those occasions and everything's fine until it's not. And all of a sudden you're 4,000 feet back in a cave and you have an incident and it gets real. It gets yeah. real, real fast. Yeah. And all of a sudden you can be going cruising along and all of a sudden you get this phone call like, um, hey, is there something wrong with the site? And that rolls into a major disaster. Something's been deployed. Something's broken. Oh, for whatever reason, we can't roll back. And you're in a real bad situation. You have to stay on top of it. You have to be ready for those situations. And you have to remember that at any point, something could come up outside of your control and you're going to have to deal with it. Complacency can be disaster. When we get infrastructure attached to our uh infrastructure, generator farms, uh, fuel systems, whatever it is, uh, IR readers, anything connected to the system, they have to go through a very rigorous hardening process uh, in order for us to then connect them through a series of uh, systems. And then we have a very robust, and this isn't about us, but we've got to have a very robust and proactive um, team 
that checks to make sure that tech, the technology integrity and that the manual reading matches the not just what the manufacturer says, but the actual system condition. And then we are constantly simulating failure off out of bounds or out of band. So it's not our customers aren't impacted by this. So we can see how we can bring this back up. How do, what happens? How do these things fail elegantly, inelegantly? How much runtime do we have in these areas? Mm-hmm. It's a constant um, thing that we do. And then we report on it. We have to report on it. We do quarterly. Well, we, it, depending upon the maintenance schedule, monthly, quarterly, semi-annually, and annually. But we wrap all these up in regular published reports. The scariest thing for our organization is this idea of preventative maintenance. Like you've got to put things in maintenance mode. And I'm sure when you guys have a release of a patch software and um, you know, let us know when it's all done and, and everything's worked or we're backed out or whatever. And if you're not, if you haven't drilled and if you're not rigorous, it's a story of every military campaign that's gone wrong where they see a blip on the radar and they're like, that can't be true. Because the idea that somebody would launch on you or would come across the border or do something dangerous, it's just so foreign to what we want to mm-hmm. believe that we don't react and the battle's lost. So c- cave divers, many cave divers uh, operate under the rule of, of threes and that if three things go wrong on a dive, they're calling the dive. And because things that are going wrong tend to escalate mm-hmm. and try to sort everything out before we get on. Like sometimes if something's a little bit wrong on the surface and like, oh, I, I got a little bit of a bubble leak here, but eh, it'll be okay. It's like, no, let's deal with that. Mm-hmm. Let's, if it means taking off all of our gear and going up and getting another O-ring and putting it on there and making sure it's not leaking at all, you know, mentally we're going to feel better because mm-hmm. if things start to go bad, and you have this other issue that you didn't deal with, they compound. Mm-hmm. And technology, when we go to do a release, we, we try to automate that deployment so that it's really, we, we're, we build the, the automation in the test environment, we test that in our deployment to, to QA and to stage, and then you do it in production. Well, if something goes wrong, there's often a tendency, well, let's, let's fix it. And well, that caused another problem. Well, I know how to fix that. Like, I'll go fix that. And then you start making all of these non-scripted changes because you want to get it to work in production and setting a rule of, we're going to run this script and if it doesn't run, we're going to back out. Or we're willing to accept some amount of tweaking that we do to the production environment to get this released. But at some point, and you should set that point ahead of time, when we get to this level, if it's not successful, we're going to roll back. We're going to reassess the situation, and we're going to try this deployment another time. Mm-hmm. Pushing forward, uh, you're, you're potentially making the environment weaker and more susceptible, and you'd be better off taking the safer route and taking another shot at it at another time. Somebody told me the thing that kills more pilots than anything else is got to get there. Got to get there in time. Mm-hmm. Ah, let's keep pushing it. Let's keep pushing it. Let's keep pushing it. Um, kills kills the best pilots, you know. We just uh, this gauge isn't working. Ah, that's all right. Or you know, whatever that rule of three. I remember when I dove um, last year in uh, Jupiter, Florida, with the giant grouper. The end of their migration was amazing. My very first dive, I, I had had walking pneumonia a few weeks before. We were fully recovered, but my sinuses were still kind of messed up. And I descended a little too quickly for my sinuses, not for 
per any rule, just my sinuses. And I see the group kind of descending down about 75 feet. And then I get all this relief. And I'm like, ah, oh, fantastic. And we complete our dive. And I get to the top. And everybody looks at me in horror. It looked like I had had somebody shot out my nose. Mm. And for the next six dives over the next several days, um, I constantly had to deal with it. It was a huge distraction. And my instructor had said, and we had one other thing. I think I pinched something on a ladder. And he said, you, you reminded me of this. He's very French. I love to pick on him. That's two. If I had had a third thing, cave diving or not, because I was so distracted by this pinch that I had and this nasal thing that I was worried about. It's difficult then to remember to check and pay attention to my environment, That's my right. dive buddy, all the other things around me. And our brain can only keep up with so many things before, um, and he was watching me for sure, um, before it just gets overwhelming. Our, our brains just cannot keep up with that. We're too, and we're in a dangerous situation. We're not sitting in the living room. Yeah, and the thing that I really love about the passion that people have in technology is, you know, they really love what they do. And they may have gotten into technology way before, you know, they were in a career, right. high school students or even middle school students. Right. And they're learning a program, they get very excited. There's a tendency to be really enamored with the new technology and uh, to be cutting edge. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I've got this photo of me standing on the edge of the mountain getting ready to jump. And you have to earn your spot to be there on the edge. Mm. We have to be careful not to be too quick to want to get onto the edge and jump. You got to do the preparation ahead of time. If you want to use cutting edge technology, it's best to use that in some some trial basis. Um, and if you do the work and you 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 do the um, gaining the knowledge in that new technology, utilizing it in a way understanding it and now you're going to use it in a more you know in a production environment on something more meaningful and you're getting to take you're getting ready to take that leap of faith you know you have to earn that spot there to do the work and be prepared and then you know you go for it yeah. you, you step off and you enjoy the ride and, and have fun with it yeah when i was in jump school they first teach you basically how to jump off a block and roll in the dirt right you're however many points of contacts. I seem to do one, four, six, or something like that, like feet, butt, shoulder, head. But then we went into the 30-foot towers. Then we went to the 200-foot tower. We did all of that for three weeks before we ever went out of a, in my case, a C-130, and then later a C-141. All of these things with all of these redundancies, with all of these checks, with then also a bunch of classroom over and over and over so that when we went out of the plane, it was almost anticlimactic. And the reason for that was not only could we harm ourselves, we could harm all the, I'm checking my buddy in front of me. The guy behind me is checking me. Um, I could at least impact them. How I behave in the air could impact all the people around. Like in, in so many ways, if you add that into a combat situation or whatever, in so many ways, it's not just about me. It's about all these other things. I don't want to not embrace the benefit because of the risk. I just want to mitigate the risk and then leverage the benefit. And it's uh, our world. We have a lot of responsibility to make sure that one, we pass it on in culture and two, we practice it in deployment. Uh, sometimes you get into a tight spot. Mm. You know, I've been uh, 205 feet down in a, in a cave trying to go in and I've got my buddy who's 
uh, five foot six and weighs about a buck thirty, trying to pull me through the restriction because I'm stuck. And uh, you know, you want to surround yourself with people that can help you. That uh, you know, having uh, the right employees on the team, but also having uh, outside people that you can call on. I love having at my disposal a collection of consultants that I've worked with for a long time that I know and trust and they're really talented at what they do. Mm-hmm. And when I get stuck, I don't want to try to just figure it out on my own. If, if I'm stuck in a cave and it's some gear on my back and I can't reach it or see it, knowing that I've got a buddy behind me that's going to recognize the problem that I'm having and help me fix it is mm-hmm. very comforting. And knowing that I can reach out to people that can help me get out of a tough situation from a technology perspective and help my team mm-hmm. is it's really, really valuable to have those people um, at your disposal. Is, are they usually within your org or? or? Uh, often they're outside the organization. Yeah. And so bringing them in as consultants to help with specific things that we run into challenges with. Yeah. Don't you, like you're describing your buddy in the dive, that's pre-deployed. So if you're a, if you're somebody that has not yet developed those relationships how do you how do you reach out to a professional group one of the things i've learned with um consultants they love to consult (laughs) it's not always always valuable or actionable or even healthy in fact sometimes it creates even to your point earlier about don't change too many things sometimes they are the problem but it is uh you know they're worth their weight in gold when they um when they bring value and clarity. I mean, that my number one thing with a somebody like that is let's make sure we have clarity and understanding and what the mission is and whatever. Otherwise, it it just goes sideways. One of my good friends um, retired uh, about a year and a half or two years ago from Accenture, CEO of Accenture um, Digital. 50,000 people in his downline, really, really smart guy, Mike Sutcliffe. And uh, I asked him, how do you help the smartest organizations on earth get unstuck? Like, I would love to know that. Like when you go sit down, I'm not going to name a Fortune 20 company, but or even the federal government, they got all the smart people in there. What are you going to bring? It starts off with clarity. What are we? It sounds super simple, but what are we trying to solve and how are we trying to solve it? And, um, and they just work in a very simple process uh, from there. But I got to say, that's the exception, not the rule in my experience with consultants. So to, to, to build that Rolodex of uh, peers or professionals or even referrals is uh, should probably, if, if somebody's listening to this and they're not already in the process of doing that, they should do it now because mm-hmm. it's worth its weight in gold. Yeah, the, the easy step, of course, is you work with talented people and you remember them. And so when you have a problem and you know they're an expert in the area, you bring them in. I wasn't good at networking for many, many years in my career. I just wasn't interested in it. I couldn't get myself to do it. And now it's really it's really fun. Um, I started going to the bookstore and I loved to, used to love to go to Barnes & Noble and look through the technology books. Yeah. But I noticed you know, there were other people, there were other geeks like me there right. looking at books and – I would start striking up conversations and say, oh, what, are you, what are you looking at this technology for? What are you mm-hmm. doing? And, and on many of them, we would exchange information and they mm-hmm. became a contact you know, in my PIM. Mm-hmm. And then I went to a conference and I was looking for, at the time, way back, we were doing Rational Unified Process and I was looking for a RUP guru. Mm-hmm. So I had on the back of my shirt stitch looking for RUP guru and I walked around the conference 
with that shirt and people were coming up to me as like, oh, I know this guy. He's right. like perfect. I ended up hiring someone because I went to this RUP conference out in California and someone wow. that was actually in Texas and I hired them local. And, um, you know, the reason I do this, like this podcast and mm -hmm. started doing this presentation on extreme IT was I I'm an introvert mm -hmm. and sometimes it's hard for me to go to some event and randomly talk to people. This gives me an opportunity to share something that I'm passionate about mm -hmm. and um, gives me an opportunity to talk to people, and it's a great way to network. Yeah. When I was at Blinds, I used to bake cookies. We had a, uh, we got one of those uh, Otis Spunkmeyer ovens, and mm -hmm. I would bake cookies, and our CSRs were, were kind of stuck at their desk. Uh, later, we gave them headsets, and they could roam around, and they'd be in the kitchen making themselves a sandwich while right. they're talking to a customer. But before so, that, so a CSR is customer service. Customer rep. service right. rep, yes. So I, I would make cookies, and I would deliver them to the CSRs and, right. and hand it to them. And then I extended it to say I'd, I'd write a. We would have an all hands meeting, and I would say I'm going to bring cookies around this afternoon. But in preparation, I want you to write a little note that says what you like about IT or what you'd like to see us improve on. Mm -hmm. And in order to get a cookie, you have to give that to me. Mm -hmm. And so it was a way for me to interact with them and to take my, uh, you know, kind of introvertedness and, and uh, provide an opportunity to interact with them. And that was a lot of fun. Sounds like a cool thing to do. A lot of cookies. Yeah. I never turned down <laughs> cookies. Well, we've talked for a while. Have we missed anything else or are we good? Um. Yeah, there's a few things, but I think this is a good place to what, wrap what up. What are the what are the hit them real quick? Okay, so uh, maps, maps. Uh, are really critical in cave diving, so you know where you're at. Right. And kind of studying that map ahead of time. Right. Uh, database uh, diagrams, I think, are very valuable. So one of the first things I do when I go into an environment, uh, looking at a technology environment, whether I'm consulting or starting a new gig, is I like to reverse engineer the databases. I like right. to see if they have referential integrity. I'm looking for lines to be drawn between the tables so that I know that the database is enforcing that referential integrity, that quality of the data or not. Um, I think those are really, you know, really helpful to have the diagrams in the systems, mm -hmm. uh, to use tools where you can map out your environment, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words, those, those quick visuals. Oftentimes when you bring in people and you go to explain the IT environment, we write on a whiteboard and it's very poor and we kind of wave our arms around to describe it. Spend some time ahead of time to create a Visio diagram or just a slideshow that has those items and you can refer to them over and over again. You can refine them over time and make them better and better, better so that you have this map of your environment and it's so much easier to describe it to people mm -hmm. and have that visual uh, that you should have. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I had one that I wanted to add just based on the dive that I did a couple of weeks or about a week ago. Mm -hmm. I'm here. I was in Florida, about five hours south of mm -hmm. where we are here in mm -hmm. Atlanta. And I'm working during the day and diving in the nights and on the weekends. Mm -hmm. And, um, one of the guys I was going to dive with is from that area. He's mm -hmm. really, really familiar. That's a spring it. diving or spring diving. Yep. Yeah. So Mariana, Florida. <clears throat> okay. And so we could call him the consultant, you know, mm -hmm. I'll, right. I'll take you on this dive and show you this cave that you haven't seen. And I'm really, really excited because I love to see new right. cave. Right. So, you know, that, that, uh, uh, Star Trek syndrome go where no man has gone before. Right. And, uh, he kind of describes what the environment's going to be like. 
And when we actually get there, like we're going to take our scooters and we're going to scooter across the lake, across the river to the spring instead of taking the boat. And mm -hmm. then we're going to go into this cave and it's really tight at the beginning, but we squeeze through that and then it's this nice path. And so I've got this vision in my mind of what it's going to be like. And this mm -hmm. consultant has kind of painted this picture for me. Well, we go to get in the water and it's all muddy and I'm getting stuck and my gear's all getting gooped up and we go to cross the river and there's all this hydrilla, it's like weeds and it's mm -hmm. uh, messing up the prop of my scooter and so it's not going, I'm burning out the battery, it's getting tangled up in my tanks and I'm starting to feel anxious and stressed out and mm -hmm. I haven't even gotten into the cave yet, I'm mm -hmm. just crossing the river. Right. By the time we get to the cave, we go in, and it's not crystal clear. There's no flow. It's getting silted out right from the beginning. So I he was going to go in first, and then I was going to follow him and so that I could see the restrictions, see how tight it was, and decide what I want to do. I couldn't see anything because it was completely silted out. Mm -hmm. I'm like going into the cave, and I'm pushing myself because I, I took a half a day off work. I don't want to mess up his dive. I admire this guy. He's super talented. Mm -hmm. I don't want to negatively affect his experience, but I'm really feeling anxious about getting into it. And I'm pushing myself more than I should in an uncomfortable situation because of those pressures. Mm -hmm. And I end up turning the dive. So I guess the story from that is, is one, you don't want to push yourself or your team further than they should go to be safe and, right. and, and risk the environment. But maybe also is that um, well, you can't always trust your consultants right? <laughs> or expect that the glossy picture or the salesperson that you talk to, uh, almost always we talk to a, you know, a salesperson, it's really easy to implement this. It really doesn't require any IT support. It's a simple integration and our, you know, our business teams hear that a lot from the salesperson. Right. And then we talk to the architecture person that's going to help us implement this. It's like, oh, no, we need a dedicated group of people on your team for the next three weeks to implement right. this. And if you do get into one of those engagements and you're seeing that it's not going as smoothly as the picture was painted, that, you know, be careful. Those should be red flags that cause you to pause before you continue on this path and make sure you have the full picture. Make sure you understand what you're getting yourself into and that you have a clear path to get out of that situation so that you maintain uh, quality and, you know, in extreme sports, safety. Yeah. Th that's the implementation version of got to get there in time. I can't even tell you how many times. I 20 years ago or so, we were going to upgrade from, I don't know, one version of Remedy to another. And... I'm going to just make up some numbers. I don't remember the exact numbers, but they, they, the group came back and said, three million bucks, we got you. And our executive leadership said, well, we got 900,000. Oh, but that's, that's what we got. So we'll just, we'll, we'll wait for another time. No, 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 900 grand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. If we just hold on, we get rid of this and we, you know, whatever. And we got you, bro. We can, yeah, 900, we can make it. Never did it. We got you know we we limp through. Um, we used it for a few years, but it just never ever met its expectation. And I'll bet you we spent more than three million bucks by the time it was all done. Like, what is the cost? What's the what's all the parameters? And part of that is sophistication of scoping or whatever. But if they say this is the price and you can't do it, um, they can't do it. 
you can't do it. Save it for another day. You don't have to get there in time. If, if the weather's changed, if the circumstances have changed, if, you're, if his version of murky and your version of murky are different things, they're different things. And we acknowledge it and we reset expectation. That's why uh, around here we love ITIL. I have a standard definition. This is what release management means. This is what patch management means. This is what these controls mean. These words, according to this standardized vocabulary, means this. We don't have to guess at what it means in our different worlds. And if you don't have that standard reference to refer to, you miss expectations all the time. And I think the sophistication comes into your point earlier about, I don't want to mess up his dive, but even more than that, I don't want to be unsafe. And I don't want to, even if I accomplish this dive, it doesn't seem like it will be what I want. I will have been anxious the entire time and it would have ruined the experience for me. Very true. At, at a minimum. So I think that's a good spot yeah. to pause. Well, uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and uh, share my experiences and my passion with you and your audience. It was a lot of fun. So what I would love to do is if you will, when we're done, share us, share with me some links at, because there's a lot of things we didn't talk about in the extreme mm -hmm. videos that you've got, pictures of gear, things. I would love to put that in the uh, notes so that our um, audience can go look at those. One of the things that you told me about when we met a few weeks ago to have this conversation was driving a Toyota out of a plane. Oh yes. Uh, I went. And, I went and found that. I believe it's you. I went and found mm -hmm. it, and then I found a few uh, uh, of different things similar to that. And I was like, "These guys are nuts." I I did a bunch of crazy things when I was a kid. What was really interesting was you were you made sure to make the point. Do you know how much work went into this two minute ride or minute and a half ride? coordinating with every agency, simulating everything we could in our head, balancing the weight in the, like in every detail. This was not an, it's a very short clip, which is amazing and has millions and millions of views, but it's, um, um, there was a lot of effort in the one that I saw, if it's the one that you were in, what was hilarious was how fast everybody exited. I was like, Oh, What's yeah. going on with this thing? Is this all of a sudden you're in and then you're out? Like It was very violent, yeah. <laughs> it was not what I expected. I thought it was going to be some Tom Cruise elegant, uh, you know, whatever. And it was it was not. Evidently, cars aren't meant to uh, be dropped from however high that was dropped from. Yeah, the feeling that uh, we had while we were in the back, back of the plane, in the car, facing the back, right. with the red light, waiting for it to turn green, uh, is like, well... This is it. We're going. Like yeah. whatever happens, happens. Yeah. And uh, it was overall very successful, and, and for the most part, everybody was safe. No right. one got hurt, and that was the most critical thing. Right. But uh, we've had a lot of videos go viral. We've had a lot, we've been on television several times. Yeah. Uh, I've got one of the links I'll share with you is a portfolio of, of all of that stuff. Yeah. And uh, very cool. Crazy, but fun. Well, Larry, thanks for coming on the show today. I hope you continue to have great dives in Florida. And I can't wait to talk again maybe next year and see what else you're up to. Thanks for coming on. Sounds great. Thanks a lot. Hey, if you've enjoyed the conversation, like it. And if you loved it, subscribe. We'll see you next time, everybody. QTS Experience. Take care.